0: that from the beginning, Abe wanted to show China power, that it had a strong alliance with the US. He wanted to bring the quad back. He was very, very bullish on Australia. And he wanted to show that Japan had that power and and deal with China from a position of strength.
1: You're listening to the USSC Briefing Room, a podcast from the United States Study Center at the University of Sydney, where we give you a seat at the table for a USSC briefing on the latest developments in US news and foreign policy. We'll cover what you need to know and what's beneath the surface of the news. Hello, I'm Victoria Cooper, Research Editor at the United States Study Centre. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land we're recording on today. The University of Sydney is located on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present and future. Today on the Briefing Room, we're bringing you something a little different. At the USSC, we're stocked with talented researchers who have published books on a range of interesting topics from trade policy and grand strategy to religious persecution and anti-Americanism. So, as we near the summer holiday season in Australia and hopefully as we get some more time to hack it out unread pile over Christmas, we thought why not add some great books to your to-read list. In this book talk series, we will bring you exclusive interviews with our experts in discussion of their most recent book projects. And what better way to start our series by bringing on the center's very own CEO, Dr. Michael Green. Mike's most recent book, Line of Advantage: Japan's Grand Strategy in the Era of Abe Shinzo, was published in March 2022 with Columbia University Press. The book draws from Mike's long standing connection with the former Prime Minister Abe Shinzo and provides a unique political and historical context for the evolution of Japan's security policy in the 21st century and the role of US alliances in the Indo Pacific. Before we start, at the end of the episode, Mike, I'll be asking you for your best by the numbers fact or stat. It could be from the book or it could be something you think our listeners should be aware of. Are you good to go on that? Yes. Okay, so we're we're going to talk about your book line of advantage, but maybe you could start us with some context because I know the book's over 300 pages. (laughs) So it could be a little difficult to summarize, but maybe the best question is, you know, how did the book project come about? What motivated you to write the book in the first place?
0: Well, I've written a number of books on Japan, um, and my PhD was on Japan, I lived in Japan, went to Tokyo University and worked in the diet. So I, I, um, I've always had something to say about Japan, but I wasn't actually planning on writing a book. I was finishing another book, which is 700 pages long <laughs> uh, by More Than Providence, which is a history of um, American strategy and engagement in the Pacific. And I was still finishing that up and I was a bit exhausted. So I was frankly offered a, uh, a grant. The Smith Richardson Foundation Um, had liked some of my earlier work and said, the board would really like you to do a book on, on, on Abe,
1: Mm.
0: um, and his grand strategy. Um, and uh, I did. So it sort of was like, uh, um, a proposal to me Mm. that I do it and I gave it some thought. It was interesting. They, um, they were, they were proposing this to me in 2014. Right. And that's the hundredth anniversary of the first world war. And the board, which was a bunch of scholars and former officials, was very worried because that year in Davos, the big um, uh, CEO and internationalists gathering in Switzerland, um, Abe had spoken Mm. and had warned about the um, First World War coming back because of China. And then a Chinese speaker said, we will fight and we will win against Japan. So it it was quite a panicked mood among world elites and so they came out and said we need a book on how japan and china can avoid the first world war and i morphed it over time because what i really wanted to write was a book about abe's grand strategy and japan's mm. role in the world at this critical juncture and that's a, another way of talking about how to avoid war with china mm. um, and um the 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 board came back and said that's good but we really want the europe piece so i wrote the book with you'll notice a few European examples in each chapter. Mm. So it's about strategy. So when I talked about Japan's offshore balancing strategy on the Korean peninsula, I talked about Britain's mm. uh, 18th, 19th, 20th century offshore balancing strategy with the low countries right. in Europe. And so I, I did that kinda to fulfill the terms of the proposal, mm. but it ended up being pretty cool. When you compare country strategies, it makes you think a bit differently.
1: Yeah, and so is that where the title of the book, so Line of Advantage? Very that- much. strategic sort of, what is the, what does that title mean?
0: So very much coming out of that Mm. um, comparison to American, European, um, uh, other country, Turkish, you know, Ottoman empire concepts of strategy. And um, obviously modern Japan is not the same country as pre-war Japan, let Mm. alone the Ottoman empire or, you know, Britain in the 19th century. But my view has always been that you start your analysis of international Mm. affairs with some fundamental things like geography and history and, it tells you a lot. doesn't Mm. explain everything. So line of advantage is um, the term that um, was attributed to um, uh, Yamagata, family name first, Yamagata Aritomo, one of the great meiji modernizers, founder of the imperial Japanese army in the late 19th century. And Japan had been in isolation. Mm. Um, The um, dai, the closed state period from the early 1600s until the the black ships arrived in 1853 with the American Navy to open Japan up to commerce. Their only interaction with the world was through the Dutch at Dejima, the small Island. Um, And so as Japan emerged into a very competitive 19th century with imperialism um, with the Qing dynasty collapsing in China slowly with the British and French having defeated China in the Opium Wars with Russia expanding a, 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 a new American presence in the world and, and all the rest of that competition and strategic pressure, he was basically saying that Japan's national security depends on not just our line of defense, how do we defend ourselves against being invaded by one of these countries, but what's our line of advantage? Where do we have to be active to gain advantage, Mm. to make sure that the balance of power or the external environment doesn't deteriorate against us? I hesitated using that term because some historians have said that it was that focus on a line of advantage that got Japan first fighting a war with China over control of the Korean Peninsula Mm. um, in 1894, then fighting a war with Russia in 1904, and then annexing Korea and fighting a war with America, Britain, Australia, the Dutch. Mm. And so some people look at that as the seed, a strategic seed that was planted that created Japan's horrific empire and expansion. Um, but history is not that linear. Yeah. I consulted a bunch of historian friends in Japan who said you should use it. No Japanese would be brave enough, but you should use it. Cause mm. the point is right. Um, it was, um, that Japan sought at that time to ex- shape its external environment and not just wait for the threat to hit them. And look, that's what Australia does. Yeah. That's what the U S and Japan do today. So the idea was, um, that Japan, had a strategy Mm. it went off the rails It went in a very bad direction but Japan had a strategy to shape the regional environment to prevent um negative forces from hurting Japan yeah and um and that very much characterizes Abe's strategy Abe's grand strategy when he came back to office in um 2000 late 2012 because he had a brief tenure that was unsuccessful Mm. in 2006-7 when he came back he'd studied I'm I knew him well. I, I I did. I met with him frequently, mm. uh, including when when he was in exile. You know, when he was his political career seemed over, and he was very much thinking how to shape the strategic environment. Mm. And so, the Japanese strategy, with its free and open Indo Pacific, the Quad, infrastructure financing, all these elements were designed to find that line of advantage to create a more stable and prosperous and 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 um, less threatening. Uh, Asia to make Asia more resilient against possible Chinese coercion. Mm -hmm. And that strategy has largely been adopted by the U S by Australia, Mm -hmm. by Britain. And now even Korea has an Indo-Pacific strategy. So um, that one title Mm -hmm. kind of captured the essence of what Abe did with his strategy. But the other thing I was kind of getting at was it was not, determined that Japan would become the revisionist, dangerous, brutal nation it became. Mm. There were big debates about strategy. There were choices that were made. And I wanted to make that clear too, because Abe's strategy is not a return to pre-war militarism. It's a search for a way to shape the environment to find that line of advantage.
1: Yeah, so I mean, Correct me if I'm wrong, and this is an incorrect interpretation, but I suppose there's kind of two ways you could discuss a line of advantage, one being an expansionist sort of approach, as you were saying, that kind of war era, and the other being more of deterrence, perhaps.
0: So expansionism at some level is always about deterrence and defense. Like, almost no empire in history expands because they're secure and happy <laughs> and and need something to do, really. Right. Um, the Japanese empire's expansion in the late 19th early 20th centuries was born of insecurity um, about the big powers dominating the Korean Peninsula and eventually, you know, cornering Japan mm. and taking away its sovereignty. These are the ways, by the way, Richard Marles talks about Australian strategy, about mm. Australian sovereignty. And so the concern was how do we prevent that? Mm. So one of the first things Japan did was form an alliance with Great Britain, the world's leading maritime power, um, because an aspect of Japan's national personality was an island nation. yeah, And there were many Japanese I write about who sought to be the Britain of Asia, mm. including protecting rule of law, commerce. Um, uh, that was a kind of line of advantage too. What happened was the collapse of global order, the collapse of the British empire and in power in, with World War One. Mm. Britain won but lost, um, the immaturity of the United States as a country that could shape the strategic environment and um, the threat of Bolshevism and a bunch of things turned Japan's strategy in from a maritime,
1: Mm.
0: cosmopolitan trading nation strategy to an army, uh, clan warfare, continental conquering strategy. And a lot of foreign policy strategies about identity Mm. and the British gave Japan a certain identity as a rule maker, Right. Um, but when that collapsed, and in the wake of that, the identity that drove Japan's imperialism was racism, right? And um, conquest, which was always there in Japan, but they saw in the West and in Europe. Yeah. And um, and so it 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 it, it turned um, it turned in a in a very very brutal and dark direction. Mm. But I don't believe, and I don't think most historians believe that. Um, it was predetermined Japan would go in that direction. Right. And so Choices with, matter.
1: Choices yeah. matter, yeah. And so with Abe and these choices that he's faced, I suppose they're particular to his context, context um, with a rising China and Chinese aggression. And one of the policies that he implemented was a free and open Indo-Pacific. Is that something that you've kind of seen continue past Abe? Is that something that we're still defending that Australia and the United States are following Japan's lead on?
0: Yes, I think so. And... There were two reasons why I spent so much time on these historical questions in a book about Japan's contemporary role in uh, the Indo-Pacific and grand strategy. Um, and, and one was because Abe himself is seen, not without reason, as, uh, as a, a nationalist and, um, um, and even a historical revisionist with respect to some of Japan's wartime record. Mm. And um, so the history is important to show that his strategy is not a return to the 1930s and the and the Japan of um, you know that bombed Darwin and mm. did all those things, but the, but rather the Japan that lost its way before it lost its way as a as a power that stands alongside Britain and the maritime cosmopolitan powers. Right. Um, Abe was assassinated and replaced by um, Prime Minister Suga and now Kishida. Um, they were his lieutenants. They're absolutely implementing his strategy right. with a different flavor, but also. Um, U.S. under the Trump administration, which essentially had no foreign policy. It was just, you know, the smorgasbord of Trump resentment and, and nativism. Mm. But the responsible people were looking for strategy. Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State, um, had to give a speech at CSIS in March 2018, their first big foreign policy st- speech before going to India, he needed to say something. So, his policy planners met with the Japanese, coincidentally, who briefed them on Abe's free and open Indo Pacific strategy, hoping against hope that the Trump administration might support it. Well, they hit the jackpot. Not only did they support it, but Tillerson and the State Department and the White House and eventually the Pentagon made this concept of a free and open Indo Pacific the cornerstone of their foreign policy. Mm. I mean, Abe probably influenced Trump more than anyone, except perhaps Putin which is another conversation. (laughs) Um, And um, I've felt for a long, long time, very much felt, because I was in it, that the maritime powers that are now in the Quad or Mm -hmm. AUKUS, so Australia, Japan, the US, Britain, and Korea, which is a peninsula, but therefore also a maritime power, uh, the Danes and the Dutch, who Mm -hmm. have a long maritime strategy history, I've often felt that these maritime powers... um, you know, since the eighties and nineties, when China became a major power or major player were conflicted and were divided over whether the future in the Indo-Pacific was with China or with an alignment uh, with other maritime powers, which mm. is a concept that goes back to um, Perry, who opened Japan in 1853. He wrote this, that someday the Pacific would be secured by Britain, America and Japan in the 1850s. Um, yeah. One of the people I write about in the book, um, uh, one of the great Meiji leaders, um, Sakamoto, had a similar idea in the 1860s. Um, the continentalists also were in there. So there are people, as you know, in Australia who argue to this day, although I don't think it's the dominant view, that the future is with China, not with the US, Japan, India, the Quad. Mm-hmm. We had those arguments in the US, in both parties, um, uh, in Korea, in Britain. Um, the Japanese had those arguments, but they dispensed with them pretty quickly because they were the first to really be um, coerced by China.
1: Right. But also
0: they had a 2,000-year history of competing with China. Mm. So this free and open, open Indo-Pacific thing is not only here to stay in Japan, but I think it's here to stay in Australia and the U.S., even if Trump gets reelected, in Britain um, and in the maritime powers in, in Europe, you know, the Netherlands, uh, Denmark... Mm. Or way. Yeah. Um, there's something about these piratical seafaring nations. <laughs> <laughs> that, I feel like we can say that. Yeah. <laughs> and Japan was a nation of pirates, that also makes them stakeholders share in 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 the maintenance of a free and open maritime order, for, because we're also dependent on trade.
1: Yeah, and and with that trade dependency, and I mean, we've kind of talked a little bit about Japan being sort of at the front lines of managing China and developing a strategy in Australia, having its own experiences also with Chinese coercion. And something that um, we saw Abe do was um, maintain those lines of communication with China while also managing strategic competition between the US and China, building up Japan's own strategy that was very much about China and China's rise. how do you, I mean, you've lived in Washington and Australia and Japan. How do you kind of see Australia managing these sort of similar challenges of having a trade partner be so integral to our economic prosperity, but also needing to, you know, advance our interests? I think the Albanese's tagline is um, cooperate where we can and yeah. disagree where we must.
0: But on the whole, I think Australia's done pretty well. Um, the Australian strategic thinkers in Canberra uh, and here in Sydney, who I think, are the most prescient, are all looking at Japan mm. and learning lessons from Japan. Um, and I've include in that group of people like Richard Marles, yeah. who has said as much. Mm. Um, Abe, you know, I had, uh, so I had lunch with Abe in 2013, in July. He'd been in office, um, I guess, not quite a year. He had his first big um, election for the upper house, for the Senate, um, and um, won a landslide. And so I had lunch with him that Monday, the next Monday. He told me that um, all of a sudden that day, the Chinese started wanting to meet him. Because Beijing respects power. Yeah, They right. tried to get rid of him. They tried to isolate him. The the, the the Chinese ambassadors in London, Washington, Seoul, all did op-eds about Abe when he got elected. And my favorite was the one in London where the Chinese ambassador said that Abe is Lord Voldemort. And and Britain and China need to become allies again like they were in World War II to stop Japanese imperialism. So some of it was over the top. Wow. You could tell how powerful the ambassador was by how reasonable they sounded. Yeah, sure. (laughs) So the ambassador in Washington, Sui Tong Kai, very capable diplomat. His was more reasonable, but clearly Beijing was out to destroy Abe Mm. and destroy his reputation. But after he won this huge election and they realized he wasn't going away, they immediately began opening those lines to him. And his people... Uh, he didn't tell me this at that lunch, but his national security advisor has said publicly that from the beginning, Abe wanted to show China power, mm. that it had a strong alliance with the U S um, he wanted to bring the quad back. He was very, very bullish on Australia. Yeah. Got on famously with, um, with John Howard back in the day and then with Tony Abbott. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and he wanted to show that Japan had that power and, and deal with China from position a position of strength because the, Years before he came back to power, Japan was really flailing under the Democratic Party leadership. Um, and and he did, they reopened. And even when Abe died, the Chinese um, statement about Abe was vaguely positive. They respected him. Right. They didn't like him.
1: The respect for power. <laughs> they respected him. Yeah.
0: Um, he was consistent, he did what he said, and he sought good relations. Well, he told me at the lunch that, um, his victory in the election was primarily about the Chinese, Japanese economy um, and strong leadership. The Japanese were hungry for strong leadership and, mm. and he was showing it. And he said, half the reason the Japanese economy is doing well is trade with China. Right. <laughs> so not as high as Australia's trade with China, yeah. but higher than the US, mm. about twice as high as the US mm. uh, as a percentage of our trade. Um, and Australia's about three times the US as a percentage of trade. So what Abe showed is you can you can trade but counterbalance. Right. So I think that's now a bipartisan consensus in Australia. I mm. I don't see the sort of um the views of my friend Sam Rogovan or Hugh White or Paul Keating as particularly they're interesting they they get the debate going but I don't get a sense that the labor government is following that that Playbook. that line yeah. and that and a coalition government certainly didn't and won't. Yeah. So I think it's pretty bipartisan, and mm. it's bipartisan in the U.S. too, despite Trump. Mm. Um, the Republican Party, for the most part, is all in for allies and partners in the Indo-Pacific. Um, it's not bipartisan in Korea. That's a bit of a worry. Um, I think in Europe it largely is. Yeah. Um, and so Australia's handled it pretty well, but um, not quite as sure-footed as Abe was. Mm. Um, you can see that in the difficulty... Um, uh, with this recent case where the PLA pinged Australian divers yeah, uh, and, so and injured them. Yeah. Y- y- not quite as sure-footed as Abe was. In some ways, I suspect, as Mao said of Nixon when he met him, I like rightists, they're predictable. It's easier to engage China from the right.
1: Right, okay. So Abe,
0: um, Abe had the credibility to engage China in a way that a member of the opposition the Democratic Party wouldn't have. Mm. Um so that's why it's really useful for Prime Minister Albanese that you know his first trip was to Tokyo for the Quad. Yes. He's continuing with AUKUS. Um, you know he's 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 doing what I did is showing strength. He's showing mm. Australia has allies and partners that it sticks to its values and principles. So he's got all the big pieces right. But I I I do think it's probably a little harder for a government on the left to do this. Mm. Um, Clinton and Obama had a hard time because the right will always attack you. Yeah. For being too soft. Right. And sometimes on the left, parts of the party are too soft. So, yeah. um, but on the whole, I'd, I'd say it's it's the strategy. If I were alive, he'd say that's, that's it.
1: Yeah, okay. Um, maybe we could talk a little bit about some of the United States Study Center polling that we released in, uh, oh gosh, about a month ago now. It was at the Sydney International Strategy Forum. And this is, I mean, a curious question from my perspective. So one of the findings that we had was that if um, Australia was to be attacked, by uh, any country, any power, if Australia was to be attacked, um, would you support your country joining the United States to defend Australia? And when we asked Japanese people, only 26% said they agreed or strongly agreed. When we asked Australians the inverse of Japan and we said, you know, would you send Australian troops to defend Japan if Japan was attacked alongside the United States? 50% of Australians said yes. So as an Australian, I was a little disappointed that maybe Japan wouldn't be defending us as, you know, gung-ho as we were keen to defend them. But I was wondering, we find a lot of these statistics, Japan presented itself as being less willing to, for example, put boots on the ground if Taiwan was to be invaded, um, is, is Japan just pacifist or is there something else going on? Why, why are we seeing that, I suppose, there's a sort of reticence to commit militarily in its foreign policy?
0: So the pacifist aspect of Japan's culture didn't go away. Mm. Uh, it just has been a bit eclipsed by a pragmatism and almost a fatalism, particularly after Ukraine, where 80% of Japanese in polls say they think there will be a war in their lifetime wow. involving Japan. So there's a kind of almost pragmatism and fatalism but the pacifism is still pretty strong. Um, I, I wasn't too um, surprised by the numbers because the, 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 under Abe, the Japanese government changed how it interprets its peace constitution. Mm. Article nine says Japan will not use war to resolve international disputes. And, and the government in Japan used to say, that means we can't help other countries if they're attacked in what's called collective uh, self-defense he changed the constitutional interpretation. It wasn't like the voice in Australia. It wasn't a vote on actually changing the constitution. It was mm. legislative, maybe how the voice should have been done in retrospect, <laughs> but he started with the incremental legislation in a way. It, not incremental, actually quite significant. But anyway, to say that if Australia or the US, and he mentioned Australia and diet deliberations again and again, so it wasn't just the US, mm. which is interesting, because I think the Australia, Japan thing is a really important way to convince domestic audiences we're not just relying on the US. Yeah. Um, and, but the idea was that if Australia or the U.S. are attacked and it's fundamental for Japan's self-defense to help them, then, they, then Japan can help. Right. It's, so it's not a full-on security, you know, commitment like the U.S. gives to Australia and Japan. It's mm. if Australian ships are being attacked and their survival is critical for Japan's defense, we can go help defend them. Right. You know what I mean? It's not like yeah. if Australia's invaded. And I think most Japanese don't think Japan could do much to help.
1: Yeah, Australia's okay. far
0: away. The ADF is capable, so yep. it doesn't mean the Japanese don't love us. Love you.
1: <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> and the
0: fact that fifty percent of Australians said they'd help Japan—that's you know—that's consistent with the Taiwan question. If yeah, the US has is. to fight, um, but Australians love Japan. You, you'll recall mm. our survey last year: seventy-four mm. uh, percent of Australians want a security treaty with Japan. Yeah. And when my son—probably shouldn't talk about my son in public—but anyway, when my <laughs> son, who loves his school, has a lot of good mates, when he first got there and some of the kids in class were making fun of Donald Trump and the US. My son kind of lost his cool and said, if it weren't for my country, you'd all be speaking Japanese right now. (laughs) And he told me all these Australian boys said, "Well, that'd be great. We love Japan. (laughs) Then we could read manga and anime in Japanese, you know?
1: They didn't quite get it. (laughs) They didn't quite get
0: what he was saying. So the Australia-Japan relationship is just all uphill. And uh, Richard Marles in particular and the prime minister and Justin Hayhurst, the ambassador to Tokyo have been terrific. Although the, we're the U.S. Studies Center, we have a lot of Japan expertise and we're doing our best to help because as popular as Japan is in Australia, the foreign policy infrastructure with Japan is really light. Is it new? or um, it, It's traditionally been in business. That's the thing. Right. So the corporate connections are very, very strong. Mm. But this security relationship is pretty new. So universities and think tanks haven't really built the infrastructure, the intellectual infrastructure to train people to do conferencing and, and as you know we're doing a lot at the center is mm. doing more um, uh, and it's gonna be all uphill because the Australian and Japanese publics really trust and like each other
1: yeah it's really interesting which is partly
0: which is mostly Xi Jinping's fault
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: partly the u.s fault to be honest yeah
1: yeah well as you say like it's, it's positive there's a lot Of good things to look forward to. I find it interesting actually that you said that Japanese opinion polling show that they're quite concerned about there being a war in the next 10 years and there's this kind of fatalist attitude. Because I think our polling found that Japan was the least likely to say that war was very likely. In fact, I think only about 8 or 10% of Japanese respondents said it was very likely that Japan would go to war in the next 10 years. And I remember asking a Japanese colleague, you know, what. In what the purpose of this is, like, why is it? And they said, oh, it's wishful thinking. They don't answer with the actual likelihood they answer with what they want to say. And yet there
0: are polls in Japan that show the over 80%. So, you know, the polling's an art, not a science sometimes. And yeah. it depends on what other questions they were being asked.
1: Yeah, well, that, and, that and makes- pollsters
0: will randomly generate them. But if a lot of the questions are about, you know, China threats, and then they get a question mm. or about Ukraine, and then they get a question in their head, because most people don't, they're not yeah. weird like us. They don't spend all day thinking about this. <laughs> they you have to kind of compare polls and look at them over time to get a sense.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. But
0: the Japanese supported, um, when you asked about well, Abe's legacy continue, the Japanese public supported, barely, <laughs> um, an increase of defense spending to 2% mm-hmm. from what was about 1.25%, almost doubling. Public supported that. Mm. And it's it's because they think deterrence matters. When I was a student at Tokyo University, and I used the word for deterrence in class, yokushiroku, nobody knew what it went meant. Um, I was proud that I knew what it meant. Yeah, Um, nicely done. Uh, today all Japanese know what that means. Right. Like there's just a national security consciousness that wasn't there and it's coming in Australia. A lot of people don't like it. I mean, this is a wonderful place to live and who wants to think about a dangerous environment. Yeah. But, um, it's, it's kind of hard to avoid that we're in a, we're going into a difficult patch in the world. Yeah. We'll get through it together, but it is, it is going to be a more dangerous world.
1: Mm. Gosh, I have to end on a positive note. Yeah, (laughs) I know. Getting through it together feels positive. I feel like we can do
0: that. Here's another one. Um, Abe's strategy was influential, uh, of course, in Japan, but also in the US, Australia, Europe, even Korea, um, because it showed about counterbalancing, deterrence, power. Mm. But the other key element, which Australia quickly picked up on, and the Koreans and the Europeans, where the US is not quite as clear in its thinking, is that this ends not with a war,
1: mm. but with
0: power bending and the Quad and our investment in the free and open and Pacific bending eventually China back to a place where we can benefit from cooperation. Mm. It's 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 a it's a it's actually an optimistic vision. The Chinese saw that. That's why they engaged him. The U.S. is still sorting that out. Mm. Um, how does this end? There are more people in the US probably than in Australia for sure or Japan who say, yeah, this ends when the Chinese Communist Party collapses. Right. Um, There's a large group just like in Australia and Japan that says, this ends when we can safely make money off of China again. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But there's a clarity to Abe's thinking that was optimistic. Yeah. um, uh, About how this all shakes out, which is peacefully and with cooperation.
1: Yeah, bending feels gentle.
0: Yes, that's right. Breaking, not so much. Not so general. So um, that took an incredible amount of historical awareness. And, and, and he's the you know son and grandson of a famous politicians, uh, a sense of his place in history, um, a sense of power and how to get um, the strategy through. Um, but it also comes from optimism. I, the Japanese people would not have followed him if it had been a dark vision.
1: Right. Don't lose the hope. Get through it together. Um, Now, I realize we're approaching the holiday season in Australia, so I'm hoping personally that I'm going to have a lot more time to do some reading. So I thought maybe my final question would be, and you can take it whichever direction you'd like, my question was going to be what's your pitch of why people should read your book over this summer? Or if not this book, what book would you recommend they read?
0: So in the North American summer, which is six months ago, um, the Foreign Affairs, the... American leading journal on international relations, puts out its list of most recommended books for beach reading, summer reading. Mm-hmm. So mine was um, one of the three books they out, picked on Asia. Oh really? And now that Australia is going into summer, that's a pretty good pitch. Yeah, that's a great <laughs> yeah. pitch, well yeah. done you, yeah, yeah.
1: fantastic. No, uh,
0: no pictures or uh, <laughs> uh, romance, no. but uh, just old fashioned strategery.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great, is it very historical? So for the history buffs or kind of bit, yeah. bit for everyone?
0: I, I started to say earlier there were two reasons I included the history. One, I forgot the second. One reason was to show that Abe was not returning to the 30s. This is part of a longer um, sort of train of debate and thought in Japan and, and where choices matter and his choices are good for Australia and the US. But the other reason I did history was it was a COVID book. Ah. So I couldn't travel to Japan very much. So yeah. when you can't interview people or, you know, go to libraries in Japan, you end up doing history because you yeah. can do it in your living room. Yeah. Um, I I mean, for people who like history, this is a book about strategy and Japan's role, um, but heavily informed by history and placing it in a historical context, using historical examples. Yeah. Um, I'm trained as a political scientist, but the best strategic thinkers I've met were all historians.
1: Isn't that funny? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I suppose it provides the pathway for the future, and that's kind of what we're looking at.
0: Complexity, contingency,
1: yeah. All of those things. Um, Now, the final section of this podcast is the By the Numbers segment. So, Mike, do you have a By the Numbers figure for us?
0: I was going to use three, top three books for the summer (laughs) reading by (laughs) foreign Affairs, the Journal Foreign Affairs. Um, When it comes to Japan, um, uh, I like the number um, 95. Um, There was a survey done by Gallup um, about, gosh, about, 11 years ago now in Southeast Asia, asking how much do you trust and like the following countries? Mm -hmm. Um, Japan's average across the 10 ASEAN countries was 95 or 96%. Wow. Which means that Indonesians trust Japan more than they trust Indonesia. It was a little bit of an outlier. Mm. But um, Lowy uh, Institute for Southeast Asian Studies, CSIS, uh, Pew and Gallup, I mean, when you see polls about Japan in Southeast Asia, it, 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 as in Australia, off the charts, levels of trust yes. and respect. So that's an important number to keep in mind because um, I think most people, particularly my generation, think of Japan as a country that's resented in Asia for the war, mm. it's not. Yeah. Deeply, deeply respected, trusted and liked. And that's an important number for for Australia too. Because an Australian strategy for the Pacific Islands and Southeast Asia would only benefit from working with Japan mm. going forward.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, uh, I briefed, um, uh, when that poll came out, I, I I guess I can say it now. I was invited to see Secretary of State uh, John Kerry, who had a rather negative view of Japan's history, like a lot of people in his generation. He was flabbergasted when I... Said that number and he had a staff make sure I was right.
1: Ninety five percent. Yeah.
0: Unbelievable. Yeah. It's an outlier, but but in all the polls, Japan is 10, 20, 30 points above Australia. Wow. You know, well above China in terms of being a country that is trusted and liked.
1: Trustworthy. And it's
0: interesting because you and I do a lot of work on democracy mm. and human rights. And Japan doesn't do democracy the way the US does for sure, but it is leaning in more.
1: Right. The
0: importance of democratic norms and it's not paying a price for it. Mm. It's a country that's respected and and liked. It's doing it more subtly than the US does. Um, Infrastructure financing, um, uh, capacity building for navies. Japan is very quietly, without demanding a lot of credit, doing some really important things where um, given the trust between Australia and Japan, there's, as I said, just all upside opportunities.
1: Okay, upside and opportunities is a great way to finish. Thanks, Mike, for coming on okay. the podcast and you can get um, Line of Advantage in bookstores online? Definitely online. In
0: bookstores online and now in Japanese as well, if you like.
1: Oh, fantastic. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thanks very much. Enjoy your summer reading, everyone. As we wrap up, I'd like to point out a couple of other podcasts that may be of interest. Our USSC live podcast series runs recordings from our major live events, including most recently our panel discussions from the USSC Sydney International Strategy Forum. You can also check out our technology and security podcast, TS, run by the inaugural director of the Emerging Technology Program, Dr. Mia Hammond-Eri. You can find these on our website, ussc.edu.au or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us.